Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome equity research analyst Thomas Goldthorpe. He discusses market trends and shares his perspectives on the Canadian energy landscape. Thomas reflects on the ups and downs of the oil market since the beginning of 2023. He says the energy sector underperformed in the first half of the year, which was on the back of weaker prices. In the summer, oil prices cooled off and energy stocks underperformed. But he adds, with a rebound in oil prices from that period, plus overall inflation sentiment, we'll see stocks perform better. Thomas comments on what the Canadian and American energy markets are grappling with as of late. He notes the U.S. had robust growth year over year, but is set to decline, plus inventory issues are popping up. Thomas says the Canadian oil market is faring very well, with a healthy growth outlook and marginal acceleration with stronger prices. Thomas discusses how OPEC and the Saudi government are taking proactive steps instead of reactive ones in terms of oil cuts. For OPEC, cutting earlier in the cycle when projected weakness is coming instead of after weakness happens has been a significant move. The Saudi government is trying to be more commercial and try to reach the highest oil prices possible for its kingdom. Thomas notes we will see rolling demand for oil, yet OPEC cuts are at recessionary levels to help balance the market. This podcast was recorded on September 21st, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Thomas, take us back not that long ago, just a few months back, to what oil was doing sort of through the latter part, just before the summer really got going, June-ish. Right. So... Uh, into the, the early parts of summer, you had oil price weakness, WTI traded in the high 60s, around 70, due to kind of growing pessimism around uh, both the U.S. economy and inflation with a deflationary narrative setting in. And that quickly shifted in the third quarter with more inflationary and more soft landing narrative setting in. So what that meant is future positioning in crude oil went from to two-week lows in June to now they sit at 52-week highs, which created a lot of buying pressure in the market. And the other part of it was in response to those lower oil prices, OPEC came in and cut specifically Saudi did their lollipop 1 million barrel a day cut to help support markets. So what we've had is we had oil prices moving from 70 to 90 from both very strong future buying in the paper markets from the all goes and also uh, very aggressive uh, OPEC cuts. Right. I mean, so the OPEC cuts to an extent is what everyone's heard about and they know about, and we've all had our version of, oh, wow, you know, but that, that background in the markets of what was going on of sort of the algos and, and everything else that was moving along there. Is there anything to say about the oil price back in June 
on sort of a relative basis to what you know energy did really well, for instance, the oil or companies, oil equities did quite well in, in 2022. I mean, that was sort of a different time, different story. Is there anything there to sort of connect pricing? Yeah, there was. The, the energy sector, broadly speaking, underperformed in the first half of 2023 on the back of weaker prices. And keep in mind, part of the weaker prices in first half 2023 was a result of the higher prices during the summer of 2022 post-Ukraine invasion. Because that's what usually happens is when you get higher prices, it results in weaker demand and increased supply with a lag. From kind of the euphoric high, I guess, of summer 2023, oil prices pulled off, stocks underperformed. And then coming out of uh, that period with the rebound in oil prices and the rebound in overall inflation sentiment, um, the stocks have performed better uh, since then. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, so take us into these Saudi cats. How unusual, historically speaking, are is this type of move at, at this point in sort of the oil market story, the trajectory? It seemed to shock the market. Yeah, so two things. So they're relatively unprecedented based on their historic action. So first of all, OPEC has become a lot more proactive with their cuts instead of reactive. So they're starting to cut earlier in the cycle when they project weakness coming as opposed to letting the weakness happen and then cutting thereafter. Why uh, is that? Like what what headspace is sort of the Saudi government, the oil ministry in to have made that change? I think they're just trying to be more commercial and trying to achieve the highest oil price possible for the kingdom over a longer period of time. And they feel by being more proactive, they can get a better, uh, better outcomes for them. Okay, so that's what they did. It's unusual, but okay. Yeah, and then and then the other part, which is I think interesting to highlight, is just the degree of cutting. So you look at core OPEC, so basically or OPEC outside of Venezuela and Iran, um, they're at kind of recessionary cut levels. So OPEC's so Saudi's current production is back to August 2020, so in like the heart of COVID, um, and um, yeah, so they're cutting very aggressively in a world where August you effectively had. Uh, all-time high oil demand. So you have this interesting setup today where you have still strong demand, um, but you're having to have OPEC cut at um, recessionary levels historically uh, to help balance the market. To help balance the market. Let's, and if you don't mind, just for a moment, let's situate Canada, North America, into the oil markets, what what they're doing versus one another, Where what Canada is sort of having to grapple with one way or the other and what the U.S., because they're actually quite different stories in their own perspective, energy markets. Right. So in the U.S., U.S. had very strong growth on a year-over-year basis. But generally, going forward, that growth rate is set to decline as the rate count's coming down. And a lot of these shale plays um, are starting to have inventory issues. So you're still seeing positive growth out of the U.S. on the oil side, but that rate of growth over the next few years is going to be slowing. Uh, on the Canada side, uh, the inventory position is better. You have the TMX pipeline coming, which is very important. And you also have a very supportive environment uh, just due to the weak Canadian dollar and just less cost inflation on a year-to-year basis versus the U.S. So because of that, the growth outlook from Canada is healthy and marginally accelerating from where it was before on the back of these stronger prices. And you expect the Canadian dollar to sort of continue to do what it's doing and, and therefore continue to be that tailwind for, for this part of the story? 
Right. Yeah. I think that's I think that's a fair assumption. And um, yeah, the Canadian dollar should should remain weak. And that in and of itself is very supportive uh, for the Canadian oil industry. So where do we get to on we're connecting there it, when it first happened, the Saudi the Saudi cuts, it was all about, oh, is this what will finally make us feel all the rate hikes? Ongoing question about lags and drags and why haven't we felt it more and so on. So would this be the catalyst? Yeah, I think it does put more pressure on the economy. So you have the just the direct effect of um, spending more money on energy. So that that has an impact. And then you have the secondary effect of um, it does um, boost inflation and forces the Fed and other central banks to keep rates higher for longer. Um, so this should have a negative impact on the economy uh, that is currently in a potentially a precarious situation to begin with. Right. Okay. So it, it, it should sort of, yeah, exactly. What does it do ultimately when we when we think about sort of the demand destruction side of things? Where where do we see the economy sort of saying, yeah, it's one thing what I'm trying to fill up my car with, but then it's also the supply line side of things where things need to get from one side of the country to the next, that costs more, everything, it sort of filters back through. Where does the demand destruction, what, what sort of threshold do you think we all have before that begins to happen? So there's always some demand destruction as prices go up. There's kind of two buckets you can put demand destruction in. So uh, just from higher prices, you will see some demand destruction on a global basis. Um, and that comes in with a lag. And then the other part is if these higher prices do ultimately push the economy into a recession, then we'll see um, even further demand destruction um, as a result of these higher prices. So what proportion of oil production in Canada is from the oil sands versus other parts of, of Western Canada, but also the offshore components in the Maritimes? Can you just kind of uh, lay that out for us? I don't have the number off the top of my head, but if I had to guess, it would be around 60% of Canadian oil production is coming from the oil sands. Yeah. Okay, perfect. That's great. Just sort of, because when we talk about things like the carbon sequestration, carbon capture story of, of how that is working on that's that's really best suited to certain types of oil production, isn't it? And that that would be in the oil sands. Tell us a little bit about this and how how strong this has become. What sort of option it's become for oil producers? The the general landscape for it. Yeah. So CCUS, or so kind of carbon capture technology, is yeah very powerful thematic. I think for the Canadian oil sands. So what it allows it to do is allows Canadian oil sands from being kind of bottom quartile carbon emitters being top, top quartile carbon emitters. And the beauty of the oil sands is where it's positioned, it's, it's very advantageous uh, for the deployment of carbon capture technology. The one you have most of the carbon emitted in the oil sands is in very concentrated sites. So you need fewer capture sites to capture all the carbon, unlike most oil production, which is various wells. So instead of capturing a thousand different wells and putting a little capture things in each one of them, you can have one centralized facility where you can put the capture on. The second thing is just it's asset life. So if you have a 50-year asset, it's much more economic because you can amortize the cost of that capture equipment over that 50-year life. And then third, when you actually do capture the carbon, you have to sequester it somewhere. And Canada, obviously, where the oil sands are in Alberta, there's a lot of legacy wells and there's a lot of caverns underground to inject the product. So Canada is a very advantageous place um, to deploy carbon capture technology, and specifically the oil sands. And the oil sands industry has recognized this point through the 
Pathways Alliance. So Pathways Alliance is basically the sixth largest oil, oil sands producers in Canada, who are 90% of the oil sands production, have formed uh, an alliance that is committed to achieving net zero on a scope one and scope two basis uh, by 2050 and have a 30% carbon reduction cut by 2030 to kind of achieve achieve these goals. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And I mean, anything else to say on that? It seems like they do a very good job of that. Yeah, they're doing a great job. And now, um, yeah, the tension now is just all this technology is um, expensive and it doesn't necessarily create revenue as in like a traditional business where if I open up a factory, it's going to generate cash and I can generate an IRR based on that. This is more, um, yeah, I'm going to emit less carbon, uh, but I don't get a direct payment for uh, reducing my carbon emissions. So theoretically, over the long term, I'll be able to offset my uh, potential carbon tax liability. Uh, but that's that's years away and that system is still not entirely set in stone. So there is a process right now of negotiation between uh, the producers and the federal and provincial government to put a framework, a subsidy framework in place that uh, makes these investments make sense for all parties involved. Can you give us an update? And if it's not completely in your ballywick, uh, forgive me, but on, on sort of the, the movements towards LNG, LNG takes a very long time to get the system built ultimately to, to ship it out and to, to offer it around the world, but they're long contracts too. So where does Canada sit in sort of the move towards that? It's It's been pretty slow and incremental for a long time. Okay, so you look at a map and you say, where should LNG terminals be built? Um, Churchill, ignoring... Churchill, Manitoba. That's what I Exactly, think. right. But, but ignoring all permitting everything else, like West Coast BC is a very great place for yes. LNG because you have shorter shipping distances over to Asia than you have in the Gulf of Mexico, where you have to either go from Panama Canal or go through under Africa and stuff. So Theoretically, that's where uh, LNG should be built. There's one large uh, LNG uh, facility being built, which is LNG Canada, scheduled to be completed in 2025, phase one. It'll probably get phased up as well. That's where Canada is today. However, there were a few other uh, LNG terminals that tried to get permitted, uh, let's call it 10 years ago. Uh, they're unable to get permitting done. So in this most recent wave, most of the incremental investment actually has come down in the Gulf of Mexico, primarily in Texas and Louisiana. And there, the permitting's easier. And yeah, it's honestly a lot cheaper to build there as well because so you're building so in a well, yeah, and you're building in well-established uh, industrial areas as opposed to more remote areas. So because of this, on the back of Ukraine invasion, whole gas crisis in Europe, the result was higher LNG terminal construction and the vast, vast, vast majority of basically all the new investment uh, ultimately resulted in the Gulf, of, the Gulf of Mexico as opposed to uh, the West Coast of D.C. So in investors who, who are looking at this dynamic going forward, there's, there's an energy transition afoot, certainly, but we're, we're still heating our homes in most cases with with lots of oil and natural gas and all of that going forward. How does, how does Canada look for having all of that? Permitting is obviously an issue and that needs to be sorted out on various levels of government. But I mean, we do have it. What, do, what does that amount for just when you look at sort of the Canada thesis for, for energy assets? Yeah, for now, I think it's, it's valuable. So one, obviously people are more worried about um, 
are more concerned about security of supply. So Canada can be a very secure supplier, Aussie more focused on, um, on um, the, 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 the government, the, the environmental aspects, the governance aspects of where you're sourcing your energy from. So from those aspects, um, I think people can get a lot more comfort around um, Canada's a secure supplier, um, they're an ethical supplier, and yeah, it's a very economic supplier today, especially on a lot of these more shorter cycle investments. What do you look for, Thomas, in this sector when assessing a security? Yeah, so I think you, you look at multiple aspects, right? So one, um, quality management team, um, you look at asset quality, um, look at valuation, look at the balance sheet. And um, yeah, when you put it all together, you generally want to buy um, high quality assets at uh, below average valuation. Um, and oftentimes that's achieved by, there's always market narrative. And a lot of times the market narrative isn't entirely correct. Um, so through our kind of deep research process, our um, strong relationships with management teams, you can often identify situations where uh, the market thinks X, um, the reality is Y, the Y reality is uh, much better than what people think. And that allows you to um, yeah, buy stocks at attractive valuations. And by doing that, I think over time, that'll allow uh, for uh, market equity. Okay. Yeah, that's was great. It was great to sort of asked that and how, how you go through all of that. I want to ask you about the concept of peak oil. You can come at it from either the supplier or the demand side. The supply peak oil story seems like a good decade ago, really, if not longer. But in terms of demand, how do you look at this from a global perspective? Yeah, I think I think peak oil's real, uh, but it's likely five to 10 years away. So I was recently just doing some work on China, and it looks like their peak oil demand could be only three to four years away, uh, given how aggressively they're ramping up their EVs and other, um, and also the demographics um, of that economy. So, what you're seeing is uh, obviously maturation globally of uh, oil demand. Oil demand growth rates will slow incrementally, uh, and we likely reach peak oil on a five to ten year basis. And because of that, that is something that um, yeah, should be considered in any, um, any oil, oil type investment. Do you think the world will be hybrid for quite a long time, even, even after the peak oil is, is hit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think there will be a role, a permanent role of hydrocarbons to play in the economy. You'll never get fully off them. Um, part of it can be offset through yeah, various technologies to minimize the environmental impact. Uh, but the issue kind of remains that hydrocarbons are very good at what they do. It's economic, high energy density, um, yeah, transferable. Um, so it's, there's a lot of good things about hydrocarbons. However, um, the world is transitioning. Um, yeah, we're seeing signs. Again, it's slow, but every year I think we'll, we'll lessen our dependence on hydrocarbons and um, that means kind of lower hydrocarbon demand, but not zero hydrocarbon demand. So just to kind of swing back to what the Saudis did, the OPEC move earlier this month, you know, they're trying to fund their own budget, basically, which is largely cobbled together with, with the oil industry and, and how much oil prices are. 
Are they also looking at that pretty hard, the peak oil demand? Yeah, I guess they're looking at it from two angles. So one, they actually are investing in increasing their, their productive capacity. Um, they are of a view that non-OPEC supply growth will be, uh, will be, um, could, could slow down. And then the other thing is, yeah, they are investing in um, kind of transitioning their economy um, to a world where the economy could perform well um, outside of um, hydrocarbons. Just take us through non-OPEC supply growth, or sorry, lessening. So we're talking about we're talking about Canada, we're talking about Venezuela. What else are we talking about? Again, I'm 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 less of this view, but there are some in the market that believe that non-OPEC supply growth will slow down materially over the next five years. I'm more of the view that yeah, there is there is hydrocarbons globally that uh, can be exploited. Investment has picked up materially uh, in the exploitation of those uh, resources. And I do think the ability of the non-OPEC world to increase oil production is there. So you're seeing in places like Guyana and Canada, U.S. is still growing, uh, yeah, Brazil. So you go around the world. Now it's like West Africa. So there's various places in the world where I think oil production can come from. And you had this kind of seminal moment, I think, post the Ukraine invasion, where the world shifted from it's unethical to invest in any kind of new hydrocarbon production to, okay, this transition is going to take longer and it's almost unethical not to invest because if we don't invest, we're going to have much higher prices, which is obviously more punitive towards, yeah, the, the poorer nations of the world. So we have seen kind of a, a step up in investment and that should keep the pipe, pipe full of oil on a go forward basis. You mentioned China being so much further ahead in their EV strategy and policy and, and you know, getting them on the roads. That said, so peak oil in China maybe is sooner. What do you demand? That is, what do you think about on the other side of demand? What sort of, you know, how much oil will still be needed if they have? I don't know what percentage of their cars are EV, but I know it's high. What what will oil demand look like from China going forward? Do you think? Yeah, like it, it levelizes and probably starts starts declining uh, incrementally thereafter. So. Because of that, so again, it'll start to look a lot more like Europe and North America. So China will go from, so it's very different, right? So if you look at uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, during the global financial crisis, you still had very strong demand out of China, right? And you had this kind of secular 20-year run of very strong year-over-year demand growth out of China. But now we're seeing that the Chinese demand picture is kind of maturing, right? So it will hand off to places like India and Africa, but it does show you we're getting, so now it used to be where Europe and then Europe and North America, now it's like Europe, North America, China. So you're starting to like more and more of the world is getting, um, yeah, the long-term oil demand is maturing. So therefore that's why you can get to a world where, hey, yeah, you could see peak oil on a five to 10 year basis. And so importantly, it's not today. So we still have many years ahead of growth ahead of us uh, that we need to be prepared for, but it's not it's not growth forever. Do you think a country, a nation that that is uh, trying to industrialize, frankly, I mean, build, building its infrastructure for the first time. So China over the last 20 years, for instance, is it is it possible to to industrialize in a meaningful way? So as you can call it, some countries that maybe still have to broach that without oil powering it. I guess it's possible. But again, it gets difficult, right, because. Um, yeah, just the cost to industrialize without hydrocarbons is going to be a lot higher. Right. And generally, 
uh, these economies that are industrializing don't have the resources to invest in uh, more expensive technologies. So there is a world that you can envision um, in like 10 plus years where um, the, the richer nations of the world contribute to help that process occur in a less hydrocarbon intensive way. Uh, but in the world we live in today, I think um, that will continue to have to be a, a more hydrocarbon intensive process. So handing off to places like India, certain countries within Africa that are on a real clip of industrializing. I mean, India has done a lot already, but there's probably a lot more to do in uh, many countries around the world. And so oil demand there may remain higher for longer. Right, exactly. So it's not like where oil demand goes to zero in five to 10 years. It's just that's when demand peaks, right? And yeah. you have a very slow decline thereafter. Um, so it's going to take a very, yeah, very long time. And I also agree with you. We're not, the end game here is not to go to zero because um, you're still going to have plastics and there's still going to be select niche needs where you'll continue to use um, hydrocarbons. Anything to sort of leave investors with on, on, on the oil front? If Again, just, just to kind of wrap it up in a bow a little bit, many of the themes you've been talking about are important, but what would you leave investors with who want to take a look at the energy markets, maybe specifically in Canada, maybe more globally? Yeah, so I think two things. So one, Canada remains, um, I think, an advantage place to invest on a relative basis in the energy space. Again, given good governance, uh, really good economics, driven by the weak Canadian dollar and strong oil prices, egress situation that plagued the sector pre-COVID, that's largely being resolved. Um, so we don't have to worry about differential blowouts. And yeah, if you just look at relative valuation, Canada still remains very cheap versus the US. We started to see some US dollars flow in the market, but I think Canadian energy remains, yeah, remains attractive. Fantastic. Thomas Goldthorpe, thank you for taking us through this deep dive to comprehend what's going on in energy markets, the oil markets on a global basis, all the best. Great, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.